0: Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Dischem, pharmacists who care. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Dischem Medical Monday. I'm filling in for Kathy. She will be back next week. But my guest today is Dr. Ian Weinberg, and he's a neurosurgeon. And I have just read his book, Leading with Conscious Awareness. It's a narrative of personal insights, and it's absolutely amazing. Um, what I would like to say to you, though, is welcome, first of all. Oh, thanks. But reading your fascinating book really affirmed for me again and again that we live in a world, within a world, within ourselves, and that we carry irons and irons of experiences, some good and some bad, and ultimately, I think, that it's not how long we live, but how we have lived. And that has been very clear. um, I'm coming up to a major birthday soon. And I think that's what your book really made me even more conscious of. It's how we live. Um, And also that we ultimately are the authors of our own unique story. And we have to take responsibility for that. Now, I would like to tell you uh, what um, Peter Feldman, journalist and arts critic, said about your book. I'm sure you've read it. He said a brilliant new book about the functions of the brain and how it has power to change lives. It's been written by Dr. Ian Weinberg. Entitled, Leading with Conscious Awareness, a Narrative of Personal Insights, Dr. Weinberg is one of South Africa's most eminent neurosurgeons and he reveals a comprehensive guide which links mind, body, spirit and brain and how it impacts on our psyche, physicality and well being. Your personal experience, he goes on to say, is 25 uh, years of methodology, provide a deep understanding of how we can live a life free of suffering, anxiety, depression, and neurosis. And I see that you also went on a Buddhist retreat, and which uh, is wonderful. Uh, uh, later, I'll write, read something by the Buddha. But what I would like to read now is something that you wrote. And you said at the beginning, thoughts under a a May full moon, a celebration of life. You are all that you are, a child with a history, not of your making. And so you enter the next moment of your life, warts and all, a moment that has never been lived before. For in that moment lies pure potential for all possibilities and all things. As you enter the moment, pause. And as you pause, see and hear and touch and feel the sensations of your body. Be in that pause, don't think. Rather, acknowledge all that is, the natural forms, the structures created by the work of yourself and of others. And celebrate all that is, the form, the function and the blessed presence of it all. Then see and hear other people, animals, and things, and for a short while be them. And if you see and hear happiness, contentment, excitement, or perhaps sadness, anger, anxiety, and pain, just be with it for a short while, and then and only then feel. Feel first the blessing of being alive as you enter this moment. Celebrate all that you have and all that has blessed your existence. Then connect and sensitively feel that which you see in others which exists also within you-the elation, the despair, the anger, and the anxiety-and know that your connection has made a positive difference to you and to the other. For this is where all healing begins. From here, inevitably flow the juices that sharpen the mind, enrich the emotions, and inspire the creation of a better place for all. Most beautiful words. When did you, when did you write this?
1: Um, as as indicated, there it was written in two thousand and fifteen. And like most of the things that I write, uh, it, it really started spontaneously. It was a spontaneous, intuitive concept which grew while I was cycling I I cycle mainly on the weekends and once while cycling uh, the concept started evolving and uh, halfway through the the ride I stopped to take a break a a drink break and then words started forming uh, in association with the concept that was evolving to the point that when I got home I literally sat down in front of the computer and typed it out. So it was one of those um, very spontaneous, intuitive um, concepts of the moment, essentially, that was given form, essentially.
0: How amazing. What did it feel like hearing it being read to you?
1: Well, I, I, I... it's the first time that anyone's ever read it to me, yes. and it, it sounds amazing. I, uh, yeah, I mean it's, it's it's been so subjective. Obviously, I've uh, it's been in on a different platform. It was then in, integrated into the book, and so I've read it many times in different contexts. But I must say, it's the first time someone's ever read it to me, and it sounds quite amazing.
0: It is amazing. <laughs> you know, when I first yeah. read it, it brought tears to my eyes. Uh-huh. Quite honestly. But, um, I'm speaking to Dr. Ian Weinberg Neurosurgeon and a pioneer And a seeker in many fields Of conscious awareness Now you know Albert Einstein said The one who follows the crowd Will usually go no further than the crowd Those who walk alone Are likely to find themselves in places No one has ever been before Now I'm sure you have found this many times being a pioneer and a seeker yourself and being in a scientific modality have you found this
1: well it's been uh, on many occasions been a very lonely journey not that i felt lonely but i was alone and um in in multiple spheres uh Blessed or cursed, whatever you want to call it Right from the beginning I was curious and asking questions And um, for me there were never any sacred cows I was prepared to take on anything And so in the beginning, in the early days I was, as the book indicates I was um, brought up in, in, in a household Where there was a strong emphasis on orthodox religion And it was very prescriptive And I took issue with that already and started questioning what is this dogma that we have to subscribe to. And and so from a very young age, probably at a much younger age, and I should have been preoccupied, I was preoccupied with this whole concept of dogmatic religion and with it judgmentalism and prejudice and everything that goes with it. And so there started the journey and I think that that laid down the influences of the narrative which was to follow, which was then to start querying everything. But the actual questioning in the beginning was really the beginning of engaging with this thing called consciousness. So who are we? How do we function? Where is this function? What are its full implications and its influences? And so... From the early years, yes, it was moving towards this thing called consciousness. And then I read a book, a pivotal moment. It's one of those nodal moments along one's narrative, um, Passions of the Mind by Irving Stone, which was essentially a novel on the life of Sigmund Freud. And suddenly everything just clicked into place. For me, yes, at that point in time, consciousness was the brain and being a very physical type of person, I'm not very esoteric, although a lot, of the thing, a lot of the things I've written go into that space, but very well grounded. But I now started identifying my connection with this neurological structure. So my first anchoring of the concept was in the neuroscientific um, uh, area of consciousness, which is the brain, essentially, mm-hmm. and being a physical person. It was going to be hands-on the brain, which was not psychology or psychiatry, not even neurology. It was going to be neurosurgery. Right from the beginning, I was going to get my hands onto this organ, which for me was the seat of consciousness. And um, then, obviously, I moved into – well, I was so naive, as I've indicated in the book. I I thought that, you know, I just want to be a doctor. I just want to be a neurosurgeon. (laughs) And and you, I had you thought
0: you could skip all this I steps. had to just skip it all <laughs> out.
1: And I had the most horrendous grades at school. I was barely passing. I was not scholarly material at all. Is that so? My mind was wandering all over the place. I was everywhere but where I should have been, and that was in the classroom and listening to what had to be done. So it was a bit of a struggle um at the end, sort of um consolidating everything that I needed to know to get matric because then I had to get into medical school. And this was a great, call it the great calamity. I had to actually become (coughs) a student that could get into medical school, which I eventually did. And um, then everything to do with neuro, um, I clicked. It was an intrinsic resonance. So all the courses that had to do with neuro, neuroanatomy, neurophysiology, neuropathology, There was an intrinsic resonance I just felt at home with the neuro side of life. And it was about that time that I began to question the actual model, the biomedical model. The biomedical model was great scientifically in terms of organs, systems, and coordinating functions. But it became very clear to me that this phenomenon of of consciousness was missing. There was... In fact, if you want to really take it to its most cynical level, they were referring to the heart in bed three or the lung in bed six. Mm -hmm. And then you, you eventually put a person around the organ. so it was a person carrying organs, but still devoid of the consciousness of the person. In other words, all that they were in terms of their psychosocial heritage and their psychosocial environment. Um, which I felt intuitively would have a major part to play, both in the development of the illness and in the the results of the treatment of the illness. And it was at about this time that the that the concept of psychoneuroimmunology (PNI) came um, onto the um, into the playing field. But again, it was it was restricted to the sidelines. Even though the research was being done in some very, very um, highly reputable centers, such as Rochester, New York, which was Robert Ada, um, who was already showing that you could manipulate the immune system by conditioned reflexes, cog- cog- cognitive conditioned reflexes. And I took to this literally, like a bee to honey. This was for me the bit that was missing from the biomedical model, and this was very scientific stuff. And the pathways that connect the brain to the body, call them the hardened neuro, accepted neuro body pathways, have been accepted for more than a 100 years. And so you have the higher centers of the brain, the thinking areas, the so-called prefrontal cortex, our reasoning center, connected to the deeper centers, the thalamus and the hypothalamus, where you pick up an emotional tag. So you get an emotional association with cognitive function. And then this flows out first through the, the the neural system, which would be brain, stem, spinal cord, spinal nerves, cranial nerves. But very importantly, the autonomic nervous system, the, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, which permeate the entire body. It permeates all the organs uh, and metabolism and immunity. So if you follow this all the way down, you can see that higher function, cognitive function with this emotional tag – anatomically and physiologically is connected to the brain. Mm. And so when anyone questions this, I I have this well-known exercise, which I do in the hospital corridors. If anyone wants to challenge the effect of consciousness on the body, I'd say to them, well, close your eyes. Let me take your pulse. And I take their pulse, and I get a resting pulse. And I say, well, now keep your eyes closed and think of something frightening that's happened to you. And they think of it. And as they think of it, their pulse rate goes up. Mm. And I say to him, you know, I rest my case All that changed was that you just had a cognitive emotional recollection And by the way, that tells us two things Number one, it's confirming that there's a connection between higher cognitive emotional function and your body Mm -hmm. And the second thing is that the brain doesn't differentiate between the real reality out there and the pictures in your mind in which Mm -hmm. you're living So if you're living in very fearful pictures, you're going to have a fear-driven physiology
0: Absolutely Absolutely
1: And so, and that's just the neurological connection. Then there's a neuroendocrine connection, the same pathway is going by the the pituitary gland, which affects all the other uh, endocrine glands and the entire hormonal milieu of the body, which is going to impact on metabolism and immunity again. And then finally, the more recent one was the chemistry of the brain. Uh, Specific um, neurotransmitters, the things that connect neurons to neurons, have an effect on the immune system. In other words, they have an effect in the blood, uh, in the blood circulation, to immune cells, causing them to do things. And one of the big things they cause them to do is uh, establish chronic inflammation. Mm-hmm. The only problem is that chronic inflammation and the mediators feed back into the brain and perpetuate the process. So, well identified negative mind states, the cognitive and emotional tags, are associated therefore with. Neurochemistry and in turn are associated with immune function such that the advantageous, the resourceful um, mind states, the sustaining mind states are associated with optimal chemistry of the immune system and conversely um, very negative mind states, which we call hopeless, helpless mind states, mm-hmm. um, are associated with a chronically raised level of pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are the inflammatory mediators, such that the person remains in a state of chronic inflammation, which can affect multiple areas of the body. But more recently, we've come to recognize that it's not really just inflammation per se, like an inflamed toe or inflamed joint in the back or whatever. But the chronic inflammation now is recognized to underpin probably 80% or more of all human illnesses. Going all the way from coronary artery disease, um, and for that matter, all arterial diseases, to chronic neurological degenerative conditions such as Alzheimer's, has got a very strong, um, very strong inflammatory component. Motor neuron disease has an inflammatory component, and probably more than eighty percent of cancers have a chronic inflammatory Isn't component. That
0: amazing! You know that I was incredibly interested. Working on my own, as I was reading your your uh, book, oh, we've got to just break, but just let me just tell you that if you would like to send any messages through for Dr. Ian Weinberg, you may on SMS 34519 or email us or WhatsApp us on 61 Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of DISCAM, pharmacists who care. Hello, this is Sue Jackson and I'm with the neurosurgeon, Dr. Ian Weinberg, and we're talking about his book, Conscious Awareness, and uh, we'll tell you where to get it soon. But at the moment, what I wanted to say to you, you now is very interested in in looking at your the connections, your 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 uh, brain, mind, body, psyche connections and inflammation. And, uh, and I began to realize I've been through a bit of an emotional time the last week and I began to realize that I was aching all over. And I thought, hell, Dr. Weinberg, what have you done to my brain now that I've now got to analyze exactly why I'm aching? And you speak a lot about Well, it's arthritis as inflammatory as well, and and it flared up in me. But you also talk about nature and nurture. And I just want to take you back one moment because you spoke about how even as a very young child, you began to question life. And it perhaps, I don't know, but perhaps it was because there were these restrictions that were placed on you by various factors that you... Broke, you decided to break out of them and search for yourself. Um, for myself, I, at a very young age, I learned how to separate from things that were causing me pain and block them off. But it has gone into uh, inflammation. And that became very aware for me. So you talk about nature and nurture. Can you just mention that a bit? And how you have come to realize the importance of looking at.
1: Well, well, nature and nurture um, is our heritage. It is a very powerful determining factor of each one of us, and each one of us has a very unique nature and nurture heritage. Nature, by definition, refers to our genetics, but genetics has changed quite a lot. Whereas before, one was under the illusion well, we thought we had it nailed, but it was an illusionary thing, that the DNA molecule was unchanged. So in other words, that's your DNA. You were born with that. You keep that until you die. You also, if you have offspring, you pass on that DNA. And uh, and that was the genetics that we spoke about. But more recently, there's a new component, and that's called epigenetics. And epigenetics really uh, refers to The components of the DNA Which is expressed and which is suppressed So we don't express the full Genetic potential that we have A lot of it is suppressed In genetic terms, they call it Methylated, in other words it's closed Mm. To expression So we don't manifest those Components Um, But we know that there's A lot of things that happen in the course Of life which change What is suppressed and what is Expressed of our DNA heritage. And so we can become very different people by expressing a lot of things that were suppressed when we inherited them.
0: So we're looking at choices here. Well,
1: we're looking at the f- the, the, the the powerful implication that how we conduct our lives has an effect on the DNA which we pass on to our children. Mm, amazing. So… And, and this has an enormous bearing on, say, for example, something as traumatic as Holocaust survivors. So that they had a DNA, obviously they inherited their DNA. They went through this horrendous experience, which we now know that emotion through the inflammatory indices can affect what the DNA expresses and what's suppressed. And so that DNA, if they were, if they had offspring, their children will have inherited the changes to their DNA. Relating to their life experiences, so what, what what has emerged in the children is not purely a nurture phenomenon relating to the psychology of those who have survived, but also to the changes in the DNA in terms of its expression relating to the experiences that their parents had. had.
0: Can I just stop you there for one moment because I, I read a very interesting article about the third generation. Of Holocaust, after the Holocaust survivors. The second generation the parents had never spoken about it to their children, the, the, the survivors the, the third generation began to explore where their grandparents came from and so they knew a lot more about it. And this article actually showed that the ones who didn't know were affected far more, in other words the immediate offspring, were affected far more because they imagined the horrors but they were never allowed to speak about it whereas the third generation knew the horrors and opened up for discussion and in many ways healed the survivors and themselves w- would that tie in with your model?
1: Absolutely so um, so the first generation um, were um, exposed to both the epigenetics that we've spoken about, as well as to the psychological consequences of surviving that. So, that's going to have consequences. Um, and yes, too awful to discuss, um, not really appropriate in starting a new life, a new generation. Um, and so, that first generation were really um, had to find their way from a, a difficult beginning. A difficult nature nurture. The nurture being mm-hmm. the early formative years. And by the way, the formative years. Since we are on nature nurture, the nurture component. The, the nurture component doesn't just start when you come out of your mom's womb. Nurture is happening in utero. Mm. So we now know that. Well, just for s- just some examples, the auditory mechanism, the full auditory mechanism, listening, hearing, is fully developed at twenty three weeks in utero. Bearing in mind that the fetus is lying in a water-filled environment which conducts sound, you can begin to imagine how much information is actually permeating the developing brain.
0: Wow, that's scary, actually. So, 23
1: weeks, we have fully mature auditory Ah, apparatus.
0: Got to be incredibly careful.
1: In a water-filled environment. Um, The second thing is mom's hormonal milieu. The hormones that mom secretes, and the big one, the one that's studied the most... Is cortisol one mm-hmm. of the cortisones? Cortisol will cross the placenta, go into the fetal circulation, and has some very far-reaching effects on the developing fetal brain.
0: So that cortisol would be fear, anxiety. What what else would it be?
1: Well, well, it's 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 the functions that are housed in the part of the brain called the amygdala. So the amygdala is a seat of fear, anxiety, panic, and rage. And so, a mother who who's pregnant who's exposed to fearful situations, high anxiety, um, will have high levels of cortisol.
0: And I suppose helplessness and hopelessness come in there as well.
1: To a degree. And, and then this is going to go to the very area of the brain in the fetus, which is, which is the amygdala, which is going to be the seat of fear, anxiety, panic, and rage. So mom's fear sensitizes the fetal area of fear, anxiety, panic, and rage. So the child will be born predisposed to a fearful dispensation. And that's just one of the things. That's the emotional side. We also know that cortisol later on in the gestation um, affects the developing fetal brain in the prefrontal area. In other words, the maturation of neurons, the, the myelination of neurons. And so that can affect the cognitive side of the child. So... Mm there's a lot of influences taking place in utero which come under the heading of nurture and have a major part to play in that nature-nurture heritage. So in the formative years, the classical formative years from day nought to day seven if you're a psychologist, day nought to day six, if you're a neurophysiologist, um, is just finishing off a process. The process, the, the the child already, as you you know, you just have to, walk up and down the aisles of the the nursery in a maternity hospital and they're lying one hour old, are children with the full spectrum of personalities already and they're all the same age. Absolutely. So you've got your Stoics, your Screamers, your (laughs) Winders, your Whiners, everyone's lying there and they're all the same age and no one's really been exposed to classical formative influences.
0: Wow, that's so fascinating and it's so true. Having just experienced that in Israel, in a a nursery in Israel, and walking through, and they were all different cultures there. It was very interesting. As you're saying that, you know, children demanding food, others, as you say, stoically waiting. And amazing, absolutely. It's actually very frightening. So, if going back to that. You work on a triangular model of of, uh, of healing. Would you be able to work f- with very young children as well, or what age do you begin to to do your PNR work or your triangular model? I would it's, like you to discuss. Okay, that. Well,
1: so it's the, called the triangles model, and the triangles model um, was I initiated in nineteen ninety two, and I needed the model to apply the psychoneuroimmunology, the PNI research, into a clinical environment. There was no one doing it. In fact, there were just two of us. It was myself and Carl Simonton, who was an oncologist in the States, and his wife was a psychologist. And so while he was doing the chemotherapy and the radiation treatment, she was doing cognitive intervention to the same patients. And they noted that the ones who got the cognitive intervention did much better than the ones who didn't. Mm. So there was your variable. There was your consciousness uh, influence. I, unfortunately, didn't have the luxury of having a, a psychologist that was fully in tune with where I was at. And I had to start doing this psychological cognitive intervention and emotional intervention myself. And I was a neurosurgeon, busy operating, so miles away from a, from a, a pure psychology space. And so I, I derived the foundations from NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, which I did a protracted course and then built on that using neuroscience. So I created the Triangles model, oh. which became the vehicle for carrying over the research from P&I into the clinical environment. Oh, gosh. So, so that's, that's where we started. So, and that's, that's evolved over time. And we've got our archetypes. And we've got the chemistry associated with each archetype. And we can now profile it. We have a psychometric, which is online, the neurodiagnostic which has been online now since 2006. And it's used in the clinical, the corporate domains and um, in other spaces, in research spaces. Um, But getting back to the children question, here was a big problem because obviously you needed a certain degree of cognitive maturity and, and emotional maturity. And so there was a limit to where you could start. That was the first problem. But the bigger challenge... Was that the children were very much Under the influence of their their parents mm. Mm. And they were in a home Which had a, a certain ethos There was something in the home as well Being dependent children In an environment Where there was an authority Being the parents You could cause damage If you addressed problems In the psyche Cognitive and emotional problems Which had negative influences on body wellness and performance when you couldn't change it because they were dependents Mm -hmm. and that causes more problems. You had to actually address the parents, not the child because you would create more problems. If a child saw where they were and where they ought to be in order to experience greater gratification, greater fulfillment, um, greater happiness for want of a better word in life if they couldn't get there, and they couldn't get there, if they were te- they were dependents, would create a great um, disease of mind. In other words, well, I'm going to suffer because I'm not getting what I ought to be getting because it's been outlined in the intervention.
0: And there would be a divide between.
1: It would cause more her harm her than her good, and so and yeah. Mm. So we we wound out of that that there, there is no real indication for intervention to. Um, Immature or dependent children and that the targeting should be towards the parents Ultimately the ideal Which we've almost got right, but we've still got a lot of work to do is to go via the school via the teachers and then via specific Symposia and meetings with the parents involved to understand the full implications of the nurture
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and the call it the mentoring, and that's really where it ought to go.
0: And that's something exciting to actually put into place. To tell you the truth, I'm speaking to Dr. Ian Weinberg, neurosurgeon, and we've been discussing a lot that's in his book, "Leading with Conscious Awareness." You can SMS us on three four five one nine, or you can WhatsApp us on o six one. I see that we've got um, uh, some messages coming through Hi Sue and the good doctor who has helped me over the years with an aching back. What are the thoughts about Crohn's? That's one question. The other is, which is an autoimmune condition? You did mention those just now but would you like to just go through those first and then Crohn's? Would Crohn's become under autoimmune
1: I don't think traditionally I think there are those who think so Um, it's definitely one of the chronic inflammatory conditions, there's no doubt about that. The whole subject of autoimmunity now is, as everything else is is now on the table to be re-examined up until now autoimmunity was uh, described exactly by the way it's worded, your immune system attacks your own body and so rheumatoid arthritis was then an autoimmune, an autoimmune reaction. Your own immune system attacked your joints. Um, multiple sclerosis, your own immune system, attacked parts of your, your neurological system, your, your brain, spinal cord, etc. So that was what Im, autoimmunity has been. But now we have arrived at a place, and f- funnily enough, it's with the epigenetics, because the DNA and its expression... That you have at the time that your immune system matures Which is in the first few weeks or months after birth Mm. That is all that you are So the immune system will then recognize all that as you Or as self But now we're talking about epigenetics Where later on Different components of the DNA molecule might start expressing When it wasn't expressing when you were born and it will start creating new proteins and new tissue, which the immune system now doesn't recognize as self. So that could be the initiating factor for the autoimmune conditions.
0: So, what can you do about that? How? What? What is your responsibility as a as a thinking person with so, your so the,
1: This is very new. I, I, I need to tell you that this is very, very new. This is cutting edge stuff, and. There's strong evidence to show that the, the epigenetic influence can result from emotion, negative emotion, raised pro-inflammatory cytokines, which the, 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 the um, inflammatory mediators can um, de-suppress parts of the DNA molecule and cause the expression of foreign, so-called foreign protein. That's the first thing. The second thing is that inflammation itself in tissue can cause the removal of suppressing material and exp- and allowing the DNA to express. So there are multiple ongoing influences which perpetuate the autoimmunity, but we also know that autoimmunity waxes and wanes. So that we could say, and this is really speculative, we could say that if we then correct it, the mind state, and moved it away from a destructive, hopeless, helpless space to one more towards meaning and purpose um, and, and uh, the subjective good space, you may remove the influences of the inflammatory mediators um, and you diminish the inflammation. Because we also know that inflammation in one part of the body can initiate inflammation in another part of the body mm. through the mediators. So, if you get the mindset right, and you quieten the inflammation, we can assume that perhaps that segment of the DNA molecule might become covered again, methylated again, or diminished in terms of its negative influence. So, that's, this is very, very new.
0: That's that's um, also incredibly fascinating. But I know that you are um, a follower of Viktor Frankl and his work. And so the meaning and the purpose that comes in uh, often in, in, in your book, that that is a choice that we have. Do you believe that actually helping people find meaning and purpose can lead towards some sort of healing? We're going to just be breaking for an advert. Medical Monday is proudly brought to you with the compliments of Dischem, pharmacists who care. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on Dischem Medical Monday, and I'm with Dr. Ian Weinberg, neurosurgeon, who has brought out a a new book, Leading with Conscious Awareness, and it's very, very fascinating. And we were just talking about how, in, in many ways, we can help ourselves and change our whatever's happening to us. By finding meaning and purpose And I was asking you about uh, Viktor Frankl And uh, would you like to just answer that one Before I go on to a personal <laughs> question That I want to ask you <laughs>
1: um, The uh, It's a big subject it, It's obviously um, a big subject um, Viktor Frankl indeed Was my inspiration um, I think uh, reading his book, Man's Search for Meaning, was a pivotal moment. And I think, in fact, in terms of psychoneuroimmunology, in retrospect, he was the first psychoneuroimmunologist. Without having the chemical and laboratory testing, that's exactly what he was talking mm. about. Mm. So we have identified these two extreme mind states. On the one hand, is hopeless helplessness. And hopeless helpless, the word hopeless means I'm doing something. I don't derive any personal gratification. It's often stressful. I don't see any benefit for myself and for others. And uh, that's the hopeless bit. And the helpless bit is, and I don't see any way out. I can't see an alternative. If you put those two words together, you have an, a life entrapment situation. Mm-hmm. And from that flows the worst of chemistry. And on the positive side is meaning and purpose. And, and we've fleshed, fleshed it out in great detail. We've got our, our f- what we call our, our five core elements, which... Um, Basically underpin this meaning and purpose And I don't think it would help to go into the details of it It's the core intervention that we use Based on the five core elements I'll rattle them off It's meaning, purpose and curiosity It's self-esteem, self-efficacy It's reward, gratification And it's all in your book. It's all in the book and it's uh, um, achievement, uh, uh, aspired achievement, and finally it's value contribution. So those are all the five components, the five core elements, which give rise to the most optimal mind state, which is meaning and purpose. Obviously, at the end of the day, a person who is moving towards hopeless, helpless – and we would call that an existential crisis. Mm. In other words, it's a vacuum. We don't see the point in what this is all about, mm. never mind what I'm doing, where I'm working, who I'm living with. But I don't see what the purpose of life is. That's how big it can get. And an absolute void. A void. And and, and, and therein lies the great challenge. And the great challenge is, is then to address it, and obviously each person is very different and to become familiar with where the person's at. And then we go through a process. We go through a process of identifying things in their lives which did provide some meaning. And we try and dispute. We go into disputation, dispute the things which they feel is meaningless and provide some meaning. And this is very much logotherapeutic. Show that there is meaning in everything. And I
0: see you also say maximize on past achievements, on our strengths that we've carried through.
1: Absolutely. On strengths and on talents Mm. and on times when things were great. How can you re-emulate those times, and that's where we would start to shift a person. But together with this intervention, and, and, and many hours are spent in this intervention, and it's and it's basically uh, categorised and classified and quantified. We always have to acknowledge, in retrospect, that the potential for change itself is part of the person's heritage, mm-hmm. and this is what we have to respect. That yes, we can beam everything we possibly have with the intention of moving and of shifting. Some people shift soon thereafter. Some people shift much later. We may just sow the seeds. But at the end of the day, the timing of the shift, the degree of the shift, the sustainability of the shift is very much a reflection of intrinsic potential within the person for change.
0: Okay, there's a message that's come through. Have just come out of clinic. Many tests done, results inconclusive. Diagnosis vasculitis. Where do I go for help from here?
1: Well, look, look if a diagnosis of vasculitis has been made, there must be backup laboratory evidence. And the vasculitis, um, obviously, at the conventional biomedical level, would have to be treated. Mm. But in the intervention that I use, I would say, well, if the person is receptive to um, the PNI intervention, then that's the, the other level that has to be addressed. Because I've got to put my money where my mouth is and say, well, all pathology is going to have a mind state that preceded it or continues to influence it. Therefore, we function on two levels. In fact... For the patients that are receptive, I function on three levels. Mm-hmm. We'll function at the biomedical level if that's as far as they want to go. We will add the p and I if they're receptive to everything that we've been discussing, which is the the conscious influence and how to work on the consciousness level. And then we have that timeless, spaceless place, that quantum consciousness for those who can go that distance, which is very few, but it's available if we had to go into the energetics of the situation.
0: So please keep listening. We will give you information about about Dr. Weinberg's practice and his clinical, uh, his his courses that he runs uh, at towards the end of the show. I would like to now talk about you walking your talk. You had to suddenly not see the patient in the bed as a number or a coronary heart disease or a a bronchial disease, whatever. Having been in the medical field myself, it was often very hard to actually engage with people on a personal level because you were allowing yourself open to emotions also, their emotions, your own emotions. So walking your talk, you have had to open yourself to actually not just seeing a number in a bed. How have you coped with that?
1: It's been a very interesting and convoluted path um, and a painful learning curve because I need to be very careful with what I said. I thought I was being careful, but every now and then something happened and uh, it had consequences. So my earliest experience in the clinical environment was a young woman of 18 who had an incurable tumor and I and this is a long time ago. This is, we're now talking about 1983, 84, where I'm starting to use PNI in a clinical environment in a hospital. And this is when I was still in the state hospital. I was a registrar. And I engaged in a conversation about the influences which may have existed that gave rise to the tumor. And suddenly, this young lady was obviously in a very, very fearful situation tore at me and said, how dare you accuse me of causing my tumor? And I suddenly realized that I had not thought this through properly because mm-hmm. it's one thing saying you have a nature nurture, but the PNI and, and, and the logotherapy implications are that if you're in a negative mind state and you're staying in a negative mind state and you, it can give rise to a, a, a real medical diagnosis... There would be those that would interpret this as being, I caused my tumor. And suddenly I had to pull up and say, hang on a sec, this is not right. And I had to change my whole approach.
0: Was it a shock to you? It was a
1: terrible shock. It was, I didn't realize that guilt and blame would come up in this intervention, Mm -hmm. which it would. And I had to immediately factor that in and then change the approach. The model had to become much, much more respectful and much more sensitive because that's really one of the consequences. And then there were my colleagues in the beginning. They thought I was just a nutter. But they suddenly realized this is becoming serious. Um, I decided to and, – and, and another thing happened at the same time. I had done studies on the body electric field in a very, very sophisticated laboratory situation in Durban when I was at Addington Hospital. And it was very sophisticated work, purified electrical signals, correlated with mind states. So that's when I really started doing the correlation. Mm. And I wrote a a 100-page monograph of my studies with all the recordings and everything. And while I was a registrar, I gave it to one of the professors of physiology to review. He kept it for a week, and then he summoned me. He summoned me to his office. And he pushed my monograph across. I didn't. I hadn't even sat down yet. He pushed the monograph across the table as though it was a contaminated piece of material. And he said, if you value your future in medicine, you will lock this up.
0: Good heavens, is that so. And
1: then I realized, hang on a sec, I've got to be very careful. I need a strategy. And so immediately the whole PNI side, the whole consciousness side went underground. And I then specialized... Became a neurosurgeon and I needed to reach a level of respectability Mm. before I brought this out the cupboard again. Mm. Mm. And then. Behold, the enemy was within. It was too late. I was one of
0: them. I can understand that, quite honestly. And uh, really, I admire you for actually sticking to it, for letting it go underground. It must have been very frustrating, especially when this idea was in your head Um, and keeping it there and then bringing it out, working hard to be respected by your peers. Amazing. We have another uh, message that has come through. Could the doctor comment, would exercise be a benefit as therapy regards Paul Fisher? Thank you, Paul. What What do you feel about exercise? Always,
1: always. Um, and we always use exercise as one of our interventions. And the re- one of the big reasons for that is, apart from its general uh, physiological benefits, um, exercise... Um, corrects several of the neurotransmitters, so it pushes up levels of serotonin, dopamine, and noradrenaline, and those are the very things that we need in terms of our intervention and so exercise is a cornerstone of our intervention, very much so, and we encourage it
0: but you had to hear that one but <laughs> Um you mentioned in your book I mean I'm skipping a lot obviously but you mentioned um archetypes and you know Abraham Lincoln said nearly all men can stand adversity but if you want to test a man's character give him power Now your your archetypes mention different um qualities in in us just go through them if you we see we are pretty close to running out of time. But just tell me a bit about your archetypes. You have three.
1: Well, we have three in a nutshell. We've got, and I never named them, the corporate named them, Alpha, Bravo, and Charlie. And in fact, there's no clear-cut Alpha, no clear-cut Bravo, no clear-cut Charlie. There are overlaps between yes. them. So you get Alpha, Alpha, Bravo, 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 Charlie, and Charlie. Charlie, on the the negative extreme, is the high deprivation individual, uh, poor self-esteem Low motivation, um, prone to high inflammation, high inflammatory indices, um, and very much becomes a victim in in situations. Then you have the bravo type, who's very much a self-interest orientated person, degrees of deprivation enough to now... Put their own needs first above everybody else for fear of not getting recognized or whatever. And that's your Bravo driven by the five-finger rule. What's in it for me? Mm. If you want to get things done, it's got to appease their five-finger rule. And they're the drivers and they're the successful business guys and the success, successful professional guys. It's the Bravo. And then you have the Alpha. The Alpha is the big picture sensitive individual where um, own needs was never an issue. They had a pretty good Background, upbringing, nurture. And they derive gratification from growth, their own evolutionary growth and growing their environments. And they're sensitive, they're the leaders, they're the visionary leaders. Bravo is a competent leader, but their leadership style is prescriptive, top down, and it's all self interest driven. Whereas Alpha would rather see a sustainability of the whole organization and derive secondarily from a successful organization rather than from a position of pure self-interest.
0: So if asked your personal question, what would your archetype be?
1: Well, I, I know what my archetype has been. I, I started off as a real raging bravo, and I think that the only way I could have got all this going was to be a fighting bravo <laughs> yeah. because I was fighting all odds. And uh, so I, I came from a traditional Bravo archetype. And I must say that over the years, it mellowed. And I started seeing the bigger picture and softening, becoming more sensitive. And receptive. So I, I think that eventually, after walking my talk, I arrived at an Alpha Bravo space. A Bravo with softened off edges.
0: Okay. <laughs> um, you know what Einstein also said? More the knowledge, lesser the ego. Lesser the knowledge, more the ego. So you have learned with time, to actually soften your edges, and uh, hopefully that's what we all do as, as we learn a bit more about our lives and our environment and our responsibility in it. And you do mention that you do mention about taking responsibility for our environment, for, for our country, for our community. Is that a big? a big issue for you. Well, not an issue, but a meaningful thing. Absolutely.
1: I mean, we're involved with um, both uh, uh, the clinical, the corporate. We're now moving into the community. So we're using the application on a very broad front, and it's been used locally. It's been used abroad. And so we aspire to, to getting the message out there.
0: Could you please – we've got to wrap up. Could you, Dr. Ian Weinberg, could you please – Tell people how they can get hold of you, Ian, and what you have got to offer.
1: Um, the problem is, I am very short of time. I'm running a very busy practice
0: at at um, Hospital. Yes,
1: I would train coaches this year because of time constraints. I haven't been able to train coaches. I would see PNI patients, but very few at the moment. They would have to phone the rooms and stipulate that it's a P&I consultation and we can't do many. Um, I don't run any current workshops, but we will uh, look towards a workshop based on demand if they phone the rooms and put their names down.
0: Give us your number, please.
1: So the rooms number is 11 485 and and you'd have to put your name down if you were interested in the workshop, and we'll look at numbers and we'll and obviously we must leave your email. And um, then
0: also your diagnostic um, online diagnostic can um, only
1: be used by accredited coaches. Okay. So that's part of the intervention and it's used by accredited coaches. Whereas the website, individual users can access and go through a distance learning, and the website where they can purchase everything. In fact, the courses and everything is www.neuronostic.neuronostic.com, N-E-U-R-O-N-O-S-T-I-C, and uh, that's where you can do all the purchasing and the book itself this latest book in its hardcover form in its hard copy form is only available at the rooms at the moment okay. simply because i need to keep control over it at the moment it will eventually be put out there and the rooms are at Lingsfield Clinic.
0: And Dr. Ian Weinberg, thank you so much for being on this show. There's a lot still to discuss. I'm hoping you will come back. Um, tomorrow I will be on, the, on my Finding Human show with Robin Kahn. And our topic is Living Life Mindfully which hopefully fits in well with what we've been discussing. We're going to be ending with a song by Leo Sayer, which is Don't Wait Until Tomorrow. Thank you and take care.